Well, welcome everyone to the Wednesday night class. Um, before we start, let's have a prayer and then we'll kind of jump into an introduction of this. Father, I love you and thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the deep love that you have for us, that you would sacrifice yourself to bring us into relationship with you. And I thank you, Father, for uh, this opportunity uh, to uh, share with this group of people uh, messages from your word. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, put your words in my mouth and use me as your instrument tonight. And I pray, Father, that as we go through uh, this study of God's at war, that you would convict us and help us to see uh, the shortcomings and downfalls that we uh, come up against and that we will be able to recognize that and be better servants of yours. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, this is the book that we're doing our study on. If you have any interest in reading it, I recommend it. Um, it follow along a little bit with it, but it's... Um, I won't be doing a whole lot out of the book. I'm, I'm adding a lot of other stuff to it. But what it is, it's a study on modern-day idolatry. And if you read your Bibles very much, you'll notice that idolatry is a, a huge uh, issue in, in the Bible that God deals with a lot. And I think that we miss a lot of that to our own peril. And so that's what we're going to be talking about um, this next few weeks, whatever that turns into, probably 12 or 13 weeks, something like that. So, you know, I'm glad you're here. I hope it's worth your time uh, being here. Um, it was kind of ironic as I was studying on my computer, I used this Bible Gateway software. And so I broke it up and I clip, copy and paste scripture into my notes so that I don't have to keep flipping through my Bible. Well, I bring it up and all the advertisements on Bible Gateway were for uh, gold ingots and silver coins. And it's like, okay, well, that's pretty ironic since we're studying about idolatry, right? When we, th when we think about uh, idols, anybody happen to know what the first mention of an idol in the Bible is? I didn't know. I had to look it up. So it was when Jacob had gone to what Paddan Aram to to get his wife, and when they leaving, Rachel, his wife, did what? What did she stole? She stole the family idols. That's that's the first specific mention of idols in the Bible. Um, I think if you got a little more um, maybe liberal with your view of what an idol is, I think you could probably get to an idol right there at the very beginning when Eve saw the fruit, it was ple pleasant to the eye, it was good for food, and it was good to make one wise. And I think that she kind of probably had a little bit of idol worship going on at that moment. But, but as far as just the graven image type idol, uh, that was uh, Laban, Laban's idols. Um, what I want us to look at first, I'm going to try to lay some groundwork before we really get into the idol worship. But when you get into Scripture... Um, what are some of the roles that we see God taking in Scripture? I mean, I'll start out with the big one to kind of get you in the right, but it's a deliverer. And when you, when you read through the Bible, that is a major theme because God delivered the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And um, in Exodus, the 13th chapter, uh, it uh, 
says, I've got a, several ver, uh, verses, 4 through 16. It says, today, and th- this, is, this scripture is where they're dedicating the firstborn. So the firstborn, of every, firstborn male of every womb is dedicated to God. And you either uh, sacrifice it to God or you redeem it with a lamb. And so that's, so like a lamb, you would sacrifice a donkey or a human, you would redeem with a, with a lamb. And he says, today in the month of Aviv, you are, live, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your sons, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips, for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance in the, in the appointed time year after year, at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. It doesn't say to break his neck. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So, and that theme is carried through the Bible over and over again. Um, And also, in the same vein of deliverance, uh, he delivers us from sin. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of, his, of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So, so once again, we're delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of, of God. So what are some of the other attributes or some of the other roles that we see God filling in Scripture? So, so we have deliverer. What, what else can you think of, Rachel? Creator, Creator exactly. Uh, you go through, I mean, basically Genesis, the first two or three chapters, uh, we see that. Father, okay, good. Redeemer, yep. Provider, very good. Lord, okay. Okay, good. Resurrection. Okay, the resurrection. A refuge, yes. Okay, God is love. King, okay. When you think about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, what did God get them through? food and water how did did he guide them in any way a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so he was a guide to them an instructor he he gives us instructions on how to live and the reason i i think it's important that we go through and list some of these characteristics of god is because when we start letting other people things do these things for us, then we have a huge 
potential to have an idol in our life. Because if, if I'm looking to some, something besides God to deliver me, then what might that be? Or if I'm, looking, if I'm looking to myself or my job or something to provide for myself, can that be an idol to me? And, and that's, that's where we're going to be going in this study is these things that, that God has set himself up to be these, these list of things that we did and, and many more. But as we go through life, if we're looking to get those needs met by something or someone else, then there's the potential uh, for that to be an idol. And, and the purpose of this class is not going for, to be for me to say, Don, here's what your idols are, because I don't know. I know what Alan's idols are, and I think that's why this study has affected me uh, so much is because I'm able to see in myself uh, some of the tendencies I might have towards giving my allegiance to something besides God. And I'm hoping that that's what we can uh, talk about here and uh, encourage one another uh, to not fall into that trap. Um, once we get out of Egypt with the children of Israel, they've wandered for four years. Uh, Joshua uh, leads them, and then all through the book of Joshua, we see they pretty much hold the line of staying out of idolatry. I mean, Joshua was a strong leader. He keeps them focused on God. But what happens when we get to Judges? I mean, Joshua's body is hardly even cold yet, and you see that the people, well, that's not true. It was a generation. But long before people were forgetting who God was, they didn't know who God was. And so, yes, that's, that's said many, many times in the book of Judges that they did what was right in their own eyes. But you have a succession of about 13 judges, I think. I, I, I kind of went through quickly, but it was somewhere in that neighborhood. About 13 judges that ruled over Israel. And on nearly every one of them, before they start to rule, you see that um, God has caused a calamity to come, come upon the the Israelites because of their worship of idols and it's almost without fail you I mean when when Samson becomes judge that's what happened when uh, Gideon becomes judge I mean every every one of them they the judge comes they they're saved from whatever uh, pitfall they're in at the time and they become more righteous, and then that judge dies, and the next thing you know, they're right back in to their idol worship. And so, so the book of Judges is a, is a study in what happens when you fall into idol worship. And then Saul becomes king, and he had his own set of problems, um, and I would dare say that the, um, the disobedience that he showed in bringing back, um, was it, which king, Amalek, brought him back in the best of the livestock when God had said to destroy everything. Um, I would say that was a lot to do with, um, with idolatry in his life. He was doing right, what he thought was right in his own eyes. And so, with the with Solomon or with and then with David, we don't see idolatry. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, there were no, there weren't the idol, the prevalence at least of idols during his reign. But then when he died and his son Solomon started to reign, what was 
Solomon's downfall. Women. (laughs) He married foreign women and they enticed him to follow their idols. And and then from that point on, idolatry continued throughout the nations of Israel and Judah until Israel was carried off into Assyria and Judah was carried off to Babylon. I mean, it was just a series of uh, kings that did not, well, some were better than others, but none of them did away completely with idolatry. What, what was Ahab's uh, fame? <laughs> yeah, he did more evil than all the kings before him. <laughs> How would you like that to be said about you? And that was, that was for worshiping uh, the gods of uh, the Sidonians, I believe, is where Jezebel was from. So we see a lot of... Yeah. You're, you're starting a story, but you're, you said, okay, during this time. And then suddenly in the last part, there are no idols. How, how did we... How did we correct this idol worship that we had been involved in while before the uh, before, before they went into captivity? Captivity that had an effect on their idol worship. I don't think the captivity stopped the idol worship. I think it was a means to punish them for their idol worship. Um, I mean, when they were carried off into captivity, I'm, I'm confident they continued worshiping the idols of the countries where they were carried off to. And um, Daniel didn't follow it; he was in trouble. So there was a whole lot of others that obviously did. Right. Exactly. Right. And I, I would encourage you all to do this if you don't. I don't. I mean, maybe I'm just late to the game. Uh, but this year, Jan and I are actually started last year, so we're into our second year of doing this. But reading scripture together, and it, make, it makes it come completely alive when I hear her reading, and and it's actually read out loud. And it's uh, it's very. I, I get a lot more out of. It. I've read through the Bible several times. And when we're reading together, I pick up stuff. It's like, wow, I never picked that up before. So anyway, I would encourage that, but that's beside the point. We've been reading recently through the major prophets. We just finished uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and we're almost through with with Ezekiel now. And, I mean, it, it is just almost in every chapter, there's something where that they've... Uh, worship the idols and they're and that's the reason they're being carried into captivity and in, in and we're going to talk about this later on in the series but part of the i think part of idolatry is is more of a self focus because we forget to take care of the widows and the orphans and the needy because those things seem like they're always tied together in the major prophets. They get, they get drawn into idol worship and they start ignoring the widows and the orphans. And, and that's in, in all these books, that, that's why they get carried off into captivity is because they're not following God. And it, it's not because they're not worshiping in the temple rite. It's because they're not doing the things that God desires from us and that is to to be generous and helpful to the to the alien to the widow and orphan and those that are that are poor and I think that when we get caught up in idolatry that's doing what we want instead of what God wants and so we ignore those people and we're gonna we're gonna bring that into this discussion later on as as we study through this So as we kind of look at this, and, and this, this is one of the quotes from the book, it's, idolatry is not an issue in the Bible, it is the issue. And it's, 
it's mentioned over a thousand times in scripture so it must be a problem and I think what part of the problem is is that we are so built to worship that's how God created us to worship and so if we're not worshiping God we're going to be worshiping something and so that's kind of where we're going to be going uh, to as we go into this study In Exodus 20, we're going to kind of, this is kind of starting with the book here. Um, God gave the Ten Commandments. And, and these are the words that he spoke in uh, Exodus 20, uh, chapter two, or verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parent to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." So why would this be the first of the Ten Commandments? It's the most important. It's foundational. Right, foundational. And, and I think because the desire of our heart is to worship. And it's got, it's got to be God and not something we set up for ourselves. Another thing is that Without that statement beginning, all the rest fall apart. It is because God is that you can tell them that they need this is how you need to live. Right. You suppose the Egyptians had many gods? <laughs> Every Everything had a representation for a God. I mean, the sun, the moon, the river, everything was God. And when he talks about having no other gods before me, is that, well, that's something I think the way, that, the way he talks about in the book is that it's not... There's no gods ahead of me. It means there's no gods in my presence. I mean, it's not that it's not a hierarchy that God's establishing here, that I'm the first among many. It's that I'm the only one. And so, when we look at God in in that light, and then one thing I want to pick up. Um, out of the, the reading in Exodus here is in verse 5. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That was one attribute we didn't mention when we were talking about attributes that God assigns to himself in Scripture. What, what does that mean? That in jealousy something that's not good? Okay, he won't tolerate other gods. He don't want to share us. He don't want us to share him or him to share us. Anyone or anything else. It's kind of like in a marriage relationship. I'm jealous in the sense of not that I'm one or the best of Karen's husbands. Period. <laughs> right. And it's always like that. Yep. In, that sense, in the positive sense. Right. That's very good. Yeah, I guess I should repeat that. That envy is uh, wanting what someone else has 
and jealousy is the fear of being replaced. I don't think with with the Jehovah that it's a matter of the fear of being replaced, I think, because he knows he is the only God. Uh, he deserves the, the premier central focus of worship. He's not afraid of being replaced. He detests being replaced. If we would be sidetracked or distracted to some lesser thing, uh, it, it doesn't begin to rise to his level, and that's a detestable thing. Okay. Benita? I also think it's from his great love of, uh, for us that he knows what it does to us to have some other God in our life. Right. For the, what I see is people that have the other gods, whether it's these cultures thousands of years ago or today, is there's other gods because we're afraid. And if God doesn't want us to be afraid because in him there's peace. And we don't have to worry because he is God. Right. And we don't have to replace him because of our fear of whatever we have to have this take a, take his place because he is God. Right. So so the, the to kind of summarize what I've been hearing and, and what I'm what I've studied on this was first of all God is the only God so anything that we would choose other than him is is less and and God loves us to such a degree that he wants us to have the best which is himself and so when we um, settle for uh, chasing after money or power or prestige or whatever it might be, that's less. And, and the thesis of the book is talking about uh, the throne of our hearts, that God wants to be seated on the throne of our hearts. And, if, and that's, that's where the jealous God comes in because if he's not enthroned on our hearts, then, um, then we've given it over to something or someone else. And, I mean, we, we look at the, the ancients and we think how silly it is that they would uh, cast a, an image out of gold or silver or carve something out of wood and set it up and, and worship it. And yet, and we... And, we would never do something that silly, would we? I mean, we would never have something in the center of our room that all the chairs faced and worship that, would we? <laughs> and, and that's why we're doing this study, because this is not a problem of the ancients only, and we can look at it and say, see how stupid they were and how bad they were, and we're above that because we're enlightened and uh, we know God and what he wants. I think that we, we are easily, uh, I, I won't say that, I am easily distracted. I'm easily drawn astray. And so that's, that's why I want to do this class because it helps me and I'm hoping that it'll help you as well. So... So when we talk about the, the throne of our hearts, and, and we'll get into, um, in this book, it, it's divided into sections. There's uh, the temple of uh, pleasure, and then there's the temple of, um, of power, and then there's the, um, the temple of love. And, and what I want us to see through a lot of these things is a lot of times the idols that we uh, worship 
are not bad things. In fact, probably for us, most of the time, they're good things. Um, I mean, you can look at stuff like, I mean, like pornography. That's probably bad all the time. Uh, If we look at uh, money, money is pretty neutral. It's, It's how we choose to use it. Uh, what it does to us so because I might have a problem worshiping money doesn't mean that someone that's that's very rich they might be very generous with it and that's not a god to them and so so we just don't know food is food a bad thing not if my wife cooks it it's pretty good (laughs) but can it be an idol? Yeah, it absolutely can. If we go to food for comfort instead of God, uh, I, I think we're on dangerous ground there. Uh, and so, so I want us to forget the idea that all these things are bad because most of the time what it is, it's, it's a gift from God that we kind of lost sight of the giver and we're worshiping the gift. And so, so I think that's kind of the, the, um, the difference, the differentiation I'd like to make in it is that it's not that something is inherently bad, it's that we're, the place we give it on the throne of our heart makes it bad for us. And, and once again, I want to, want to reiterate that this is not a study of me saying here are your idols that's for you to determine on your own but I want to we'll we'll take some hard looks at some things that the book talks about that that are idols and we will try to uh, see if that's something that might be a snare and a stumbling block uh, to you um in the introduction to the book, since this class is kind of an introduction, I wanted to read uh, several pages, and I'll try not to do this too often. I mean, I hate reading to people because you're all are mostly literate, I think. But you don't have the book, so I'm going to read it to you. It was just a simple late-night conversation with my eight-year-old daughter, Morgan, but it changed my life and my church. I was sitting on her bed for our nightly prayers, but she had a surprise for me before we prayed. She had been doing some memory work, and she wanted to recite it for me. Dad, she said, you want to hear me say the Ten Commandments? You memorize them all? A proud grin came over her face. Wow, I said, smiling, let me hear them. I lay down next to her and listened to Morgan work her way through the greatest top ten list of them all, the one that came in tablet form and was recorded in Exodus 20. She made her way through them in her sing-song way. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. On down the list. As she finished, my teachable moment instincts kicked in. I said, Morgan, that was great. Let me ask you, have you ever broken any of the commandments? She smiled again. This time it wasn't as much a shy smile as a guilty one. Like the smile I give my wife when she asks what happened to the Sour Patch watermelons that were meant for the kids' lunchboxes. I could see that Morgan was trying to think through an answer that would be honest without indicting her. I decided to help. Well, let's see, I said, rubbing my chin. Have you ever lied? She nodded slowly. Have you ever wanted something else so much that you wished they didn't? Have you ever wanted what someone else had so much you wished they didn't have it? She nodded, discovering that she was guilty of coveting. I kept pushing. I know you haven't murdered anybody, Morgan, but have you ever felt really, really angry at someone in your heart, maybe so much that just for then you hated that person? Morgan, have you ever maybe oh, I don't know, not honored your father and mother? We both knew the answer to that one. 
This was not going the way she planned, but hey, that's how it goes when you get stuck with a preacher for a daddy. She let out a heavy sigh, which I immediately recognized. It's the same sigh I get on Sunday morning when someone is losing interest in the sermon. It was time for me to stop preaching and offer the invitation. Before I had a chance, her eyes became bright and she said, Dad, I know one commandment I've never broken. I've never made an idol. Now, I really, really wanted to respond to that. I wanted to tell my daughter that as a matter of fact, that particular commandment is the very one we all break most often. I wanted to tell her what Martin Luther said, that you can't violate the other nine without breaking this one first. But as I lay next to my young daughter, I decided it best to save the theology lesson for another day. We prayed and thanked God for sending Jesus to take away our sin and guilt. As I left, I gave her a smile and kissed her on the forehead and told her I was proud of her for memorizing the Ten Commandments. But walking down the steps, I wondered, how many people see this subject of idolatry exactly as Morgan did? Maybe they see the Ten Commandments as one more checklist, like the rules posted at the community swimming pool, No running by the pool, no diving in the shallow end, no peeing in the pool, just a long list of rules. And the one about idols is quickly skipped over because they think they've got the bullet point covered. After all, the whole subject of idolatry seems mostly obsolete. The command was for them, was for then, not now, right? As for those thousands or so references to idolatry in the Bible, haven't they expired? We don't know anyone who kneels before golden statues or bows down before carved images. Hasn't idolatry gone the way of leisure suits, shoulder pads, and jelly shoes? Aren't we past all that? Idolatry seems so primitive, so irrelevant. Is a book on idolatry even necessary? Why not a book about rain dancing and witch doctors? And yet idolatry is the number one issue in the Bible. And that should raise caution signals for us. Idolatry comes into every book. More than 50 of the laws in the first five books are aimed at this issue. In all of Judaism, it was one of only four sins to which the death penalty was attached. Seeing my faith in life through the lens of idolatry has rebuilt my relationship with God from the ground up. As we've talked more about it, Many in our church would say the same. Understanding the significance of this issue was a game changer. As we look at life through this lens, it becomes clear that there's a war going on. The gods are at war, and their strength is not to be underestimated. These gods clash for the throne of your heart, and much is at stake. Everything about me Everything I do, every relationship I have, everything I hope or dream or wish to become depends on what God wins that war. The deadliest war is the one most of us never realize is being fought. I understand how my eight-year-old daughter had yet to get a handle on that commandment, but the problem is that most adults haven't done so either. I wonder how many of the rest of us are just like Morgan was, believing that they can put a nice check mark onto that list and dismiss any concerns over idols forever. What if it's not about statues? What if the gods of here and now are not cosmic deities with strange names? What if they take identities that are so ordinary that we don't recognize them as gods at all? What if we do our kneeling and our bowing with our imaginations our checkbooks, our search engines, our calendars? What if I told you that every sin you're struggling with, every discouragement you're dealing with, even the lack of purpose you're living with, are because of idolatry? And that's why I want to do this class, because this strikes me pretty deeply. Because when I look at my own life and the failures and the things I struggle with, And I see that God wants so much more for me. And and it's just like our kids many times. And we we teach them and we show them things and they don't it doesn't click with them. They don't get it. And it's not because we're mean, 
It's because we want the best for them. And we can see self-destructive behavior in them and we don't like it and we want them to change. And I think that's exactly how God sees us. Uh, When we go on a road of self-destruction, it pains him because he loves us so much that he wants us uh, to obey and therefore have the life that he's, that's there waiting for us. So, does anyone in here struggle with idolatry? The lack of hands says yes. <laughs> and and it's, it's important. Our, our hearts are important. Um, Proverbs 4.23, I think, kind of sums this up. It says, above all else, guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. So if we're giving our hearts to an idol, where is God? We'll we'll get there. Family can certainly be an idol in our lives. I don't really want to continue on some of this because it's for, I've kind of got it in a particular order here, so we're a little early. Um, next week we'll I think we're going to try to do a video there's a there's six videos with this study um, and he interviews um, several people some you probably know Chuck Colson is one of them um, his, his will come up during the the temple of power um, but there's a guy that he had uh, issues with uh, food. It was, that was his idol. Uh, one was money and success. And so these, these discussions are, are very good, I think, and very hard-hitting for me, at least. And, and like I say, I hope that this is something that, this is a study that can encourage you and, um, and help you see that that God loves us so much that he's not willing to share us with something that's inferior to himself. Skip. When you talk about the gift of God that's been given to us, whatever that is, and we turn it around and worship the gift rather than the giver. Right. I heard an illustration many years ago that just just turned my world upside down. When a father was in the hospital during the Christmas season and he had a certain disease that his children couldn't come up, come up to get him seen. And he told his wife to get the boy, I said children, he only had one child, to get the child fire truck. He knew the child wanted the fire truck. And so the, mo- the mother brought the child and pointed up at the top of the building on the seventh floor and said, that's your daddy. And he's giving you this present. And he opened it up. And he was so enthralled with the fire truck that he never looked up to his daddy. It was just you could just... and. It was just so heartbreaking to the father that here was he was completely alone by himself, and yet the son was so enthralled with the fire truck that he never looked up to see his dad. And that just I just looked at my own life and just think, how many times have I done that? And then I think of the Apostle Paul when he says, "I buffet my body daily." lest after preaching to others, I myself might be a castaway. And to me, that, that has really helped me with my own idolatry. Right. To know that, that, that that's something that we, we sometimes worship the, the gift rather than the giver. 
And it can be so many different things. And our body controls that because we, we, we're all about our senses. Yep. Whether it be food or whatever. Yep. Benita? Does it bring up the possibility of worshiping the Bible? That's not one that's in the book, but that's one that I think we'll cover because I think that's, that's a danger for us, especially, I think, in churches of Christ because we want to be right. In fact, our salvation depends on us being right. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's kind of, that's in, our, in the Church of Christ culture, that's kind of the, the view of things being, and, and I think what Richard said is correct. We want to be righteous, but that's not the same thing as being right. But I think that many times the, the Bible has become an idol to us. Yeah, I've heard the word bibliolatry. And I think Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, they're supposed to lead you to me and missing it. So like that was the Bible the means to an end and they've made the Bible their end. Right. And I think sometimes we do that. Yep. Well, another verse that um, I did want to go over here is um, is in Joshua twenty four where um, they've come out of Egypt um, and Joshua is, is talking about the, the gods of your fathers, uh, the gods of the nations where you're dwelling. And then the, what was the other one? The gods of, there were three choices. Anyway, but he says, as for me and my house, We'll serve the Lord. And in that list, not worshiping anything was not an option because that, that's how we're built. And so, so we're going to worship something. And, and as Joshua said, uh, worship God uh, because we could worship money because dad worshiped money. We, should, we could worship food because, man, my grandma, she was a food pusher. Makes it easy to worship food. So we, we could worship the gods of our fathers. But that's not, uh, that's not who God wants us to worship. He, want, he, he and he alone is to be on the throne of our hearts. And so often when we get that out of order, we, uh, we suffer for it. And, and God will... At least he's done it in my life. He'll put himself in direct competition to whatever idol I seem to be struggling with the most at the time. He'll say, is it going to be me or is it going to be your money? Is it going to be your 401k or is it going to be me? What, what's it going to be here? Um, and it takes a lot of soul searching to figure that one out. Because just like the ancients... I mean, they didn't worship Baal for nothing. I mean, that was where their livelihood came from, their food came from. That was the god of uh, weather and agriculture. And so they thought by appeasing that god, they would have success. And we think the same thing sometimes. If I can just get that next promotion, I'll be where I need to be. And not realizing that that's an idol in our life. Well, I'm through, so I'm not going to keep talking. We're done early. We can use this time for fellowship. If anybody has any questions or comments they'd like to make, now would be a good time. I think an idol is anything that replaces God, including myself. I put myself on the throne, a constant you know, of my life, my time, my schedule, my what I want to do. And I think that competes with God, is that we forget our purpose. Right. And I would say that me putting myself on the throne of my heart 
probably is a root to at least half of these other things that, that we'll talk about. Anything else? Keith. Idolatry to me is like working with a camera. Uh, there are things that are in focus and things that are out of focus, especially with the longer tele, uh, telephoto lens. God knows we have to bring things into focus. Money has to draw my attention sometimes. Or I'd be put in jail, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> but the main focus is on God. And that's where the lens should always go, is to the focus of God. But we do have to focus on other things. We have to focus on family sometimes. There are things that we need to pay attention to, but we just don't have to keep our focus there. Okay. Yep. I mean, you, when I look at Eastside and some of the things that have gone on even since COVID, I mean, a lot of people left and it's like, why? Because they can't separate their preferences from their Christianity. They set up idols of other things and they can't, they can't see it. And that's, and that's what I want us to get to because I'm that way. I can't, a lot of times I can't see what these things are because I'm too close to it, I guess. And I think that's where we can, I think, honestly, I think that's why the church is here is so that we can talk to and encourage one another, help us see those blind spots and, and be better, better servants of God. And I, I think that's a huge, huge purpose of the church. But, but we'll get into a lot of this as we go through this study. Uh, but if, like I say, if you, if you want to get this book and read it, I would definitely encourage it. Uh, it won't be necessary for the class because we'll be able to, to we'll be going through uh, more or less in order, but, uh, but it'll be stuff that will uh, certainly be attached. It's a Bible study, so we're going to be attaching a lot of scripture to it to, to see what we're doing. So thank you all for being here. I appreciate it and have a good rest of your week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.